Okay, why was the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus necessary in the first place? So we're going to come full circle and, and run a lap around that thing. So let's pick up this week with, we have one more letter I want to read that was written to Mrs. Wilberforce from John Newton. And recall we're going through uh, our lesson here in uh, Newtonian phonics. It's funny because I was reading this week from, uh, in preparation for, I'm going down this weekend to uh, the, the Convergence in Faith and Science outside of Philly for a conference with some of the, the names that I've just come to be a disciple of in the uh, design movement, the intelligent design movement. And so I'm reading, reading from one of the books of Stephen Meyer, who's, who's sort of one of the driving forces in the intelligent design movement. And I'm reading his book, Return of the God Hypothesis, and the depth that he's, he's a very deep book. Um, it's not casual reading at all. But just the things that are, that going back and discovering, how is it that we began to even think that there was anything beyond our own galaxy? When did that happen? How did that happen? How did they start studying uh, the way that light reflects through different wavelengths given the distances in the orbiting speed at which things are happening and how does that manifest itself in different colors of light and how that helps us determine distance from it's just amazing right this is so it's so amazing and but I would say that John Newton brings that same depth to his spiritual grasp of the gospel and how it impacted his whole life, how it changed him, right? How it should change all of us, but Newton is a great example of just how... Oh, wow, that's cold, man. That's cold. Let's see, man. Uh, how it just changed everything about him, so, such that he could just... He's so fluent in the gospel, right? He has gospel fluency. I was listening to a... I'm watching a series. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the Epic Times. If you're not... It's probably the best source of news in the world you could get right now, but they have a series of really good videos, and I'm watching one called Planet Lockdown, all about the manipulation, the mass psychoses of people that were taken by the government and the media. And I'm listening to different people from different countries be interviewed, and they have sort of the scientists from Sweden or wherever they are, they have a broken sort of English, right? And they're trying to communicate truth effectively, and they are. But it's a little bit broken. They have to stop and pause. Newton is completely fluent in the gospel. He is, he's just uh, so schooled in it. And you only get through that, you get to that place by prayer, meditation, scripture, just spending time in there. You get to saturate yourself, let yourself soak in the gospel. Okay. So he's saying here, this is just a little letter that he's written to Mrs. Wilberforce. Again, last one we'll cover in his writings to her. Sort of the subject is the Christian mourning, as in mourning over something, right? Christian mourning and rejoicing. He says, My dear madam, I did not hear of your late illness till I was informed you were much better. I praise the Lord for your recovery and hope you will have reason to praise him for all his chastisements. For surely they are sent in love for the sake of the supports with which they are accompanied and the fruits which, by his blessing, they produce. They deserve a place in the list of our peculiar and covenant mercies. So whatever she was enduring in sickness, and in those days, they didn't have the convenience of ibuprofen and all the little things that we wimpy crybabies get today every time we get the slightest little itch, sliver, or inconvenience. These people knew what it was like to have a something outside the body get in the body and cause trouble, right? So, I praise the Lord for your recovery and hope you'll have reason to praise Him 
for all his chastisements. <laughs> That's a bold statement, right? I mean, imagine being, you just came through whatever she would have had. And, and he's saying, you know, I, I, I hope you have reason to praise him for all your chastisements. Now, that's a different thing than, um, I might have shared this before, but at a church I was once at, we had a brother get up and share something who was going through cancer and who ultimately succumbed to it. But the pastor afterwards got up to close the service and he started by saying, God, we thank you for cancer. And I never wanted to attack a man of God like I wanted to attack that man. I said to him, you can thank God for cancer when you have cancer. Don't you stand up there and thank God for somebody else's cancer. Who do you think you are? And I wish I would have had the courage to go up to him and say that to him afterwards. Because he might as well have just vomited on the people. Because that's the way that it felt. It felt like spiritually he had just vomited on people. But there is a certain sense in which all of us, under the, um, under the difficulties of these severe physical trials, will find cause in a sense to know that you know, that word chastisement can be misunderstood to think that God is punishing Mrs. Wilberforce for something. And the word discipline is used to misunderstood the same way by, I think, a lot of God's people. Discipline is nothing short of training. And it might require some correction from God, but by and large, it's training. So there's nothing wasted in the Christian's life, which is difficult to fathom. Because at the same time, we know that these sicknesses and everything only happen as a result of the fall. And on the other hand, we know that God uses them in his sovereignty to produce certain effects in his people. And ultimately that effect is to bring them home to the perfection that he has in plan for us anyway. So, I say all that to say, I don't think that he says that lightly. I don't think he's just being terse. I think that he genuinely hopes that there's something that benefits her by it. Because there's nothing that happens in our life that is just sent for misery to make us unhappy and have no value. Right? But surely, he says, they are sent in love. Now, where do some of these things come from, right? Where do we, uh, where, where do we get this? Um, there's a couple of strange things going on, right? So we, we think of, this made me think of Paul, of course, because I think he was obviously steeped in Pauline thought and theology. And I was thinking along the line of Philippians, where we see a couple of different things going on in Philippians. Two simultaneous things going on in the mind and in the heart of Paul, where in chapter 2, verses 25 to 27, he can and does say, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. If, if Epaphroditus died, Paul would have had sorrow upon sorrow. And so this, we have these same things going on in the same time in the life of, of the Christian. That yes, the things that try us and exercise our souls and our faith have a benefit for us, but they also will bring out that natural affection, grieving, and, and fright in the mind of others. Yes, Gary? Well, Pepper Dad, is like you said, Paul would have really been overwhelmed with sorrow yes. about his death. Hmm? Concerning his own death in chapter 1, he says, For me to die uh, is gain. Yes. And to be with Christ is far better. So yeah. there is that balance. Yeah, yeah, that's how I, I had that down here as well. That was the other par paradoxically, Paul says back in chapter 1, For me to depart is better, you know, but I, it, I have to remain here with you. I want to be with Christ, right? To, 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 to die is gain. Well, why doesn't he have the same thought about Epaphroditus? We, he doesn't. He's not like, yeah, Epaphroditus is sick. Maybe he'll die. He's going to gain Christ. That's twisted. Right? So just all that to say, we are very complex. We have all these things going on, and there's a balance to these things. 
There's also, as we know from James, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. We know from the book of Hebrews that, you know, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And again, that doesn't mean God's getting ready to punish. God doesn't punish his children, period, in the story. So, um, that punishment was, God, God, God bankrupted his, his wrath on Jesus for his people. He, he, there's nothing left in there for him to spend. He has no wrath currency with which to spend on his people. He exhausted it in Jesus. Always remember that. Alrighty. He says, Our attainment and sanctification is weak and our progress slow, but our justification is perfect and our hope sure. <laughs> so much in that one sentence. Our attainment and sanctification is weak and our progress is slow and every one of us knows it. How easily we... We get we don't even hear the gears grind. You know when you're driving stick. Does anyone drive stick anymore? By the way, I miss driving stick. But one of the things I don't miss is the case of right. You, you grind those gears when you're going. You want to go from first uh, reverse to first or something, right? We do that all the time spiritually. We grind the gears. We don't go. We don't have that strictly forward momentum uh, like we'd like to have. On the other hand, again, here's that same reality. Our justification is perfect, and our hope sure. May we so look to the bright side of our case as to not be cast down and discouraged. And may we maintain such a sense of the dark side as may keep us from being exalted above measure. Where's Paul? Where's he getting this thought? What, what is informing the mind of John Newton that he could say such a thing as may we look so to the bright side of our case as not to be cast down and yet may we maintain such a sense of the dark side as may be, as keep us from being exalted above measure would be the turn of phrase there that we ought to recognize. Where do we see that exalted above measure? Who was afraid of being exalted above measure? And what was the action that God took to assure that wouldn't happen? Paul. Paul, right, thank you. And where are we talking about? What letter? Yes. And who's he writing to? Yeah, yes, right, Second Corinthians, yes. Right. So that I wouldn't be exalted above measure. This is the same Paul that says we're crushed, we're perplexed, we have to get everything coming against us, we've got struggles within, struggles without. But we are not we're, we're not cast off. We're not so discouraged that we can't go on. Paul at times says we were at the point where we were basically wishing we would just die and be done with this. Right? And I have to think that there becomes a time in the life of Christians at times when the trials are so intense. <coughs> Where is Paul said? I mean, who else knows better than Paul? I think Paul would prefer, you know, death is gain, been stoned and whipped five times and every other thing that happened to him. I begin to start to see where death is so preferable, right? And the Christian can get to that place. And I think it takes time for God, because of who we are, it takes time for God to get us to that place where we can see death is gain. It's very easy for us to say that. It's the easiest thing in the world to quote scripture. But we know from the book of Hebrews and we know from even secular writing that death, the king of terrors, is, is everyone has a fear of death. You're born with a fear of death. You're terrified of death. It manifests itself in a lot of ways throughout your life. And uh, as we grow in Christ, that becomes less and less, you know, can become less and less a king of terror so to speak it's still going to scare us to some extent it's not natural it's just not natural death is an enemy it isn't part of the circle of life it's an enemy it's, it's, a, it's the last enemy that's going to be defeated 
But we know from Hebrews 2.14 that Christ came to, 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 to basically abolish the works of the devil. And it says in 2.14, it said also that he became, he himself partook of flesh and blood, right? So that he could come and die. And what, what purpose did he serve by doing that? He said all those that who through fear of death were held captive by Satan. And that's a lot, by the way, too, of what went on globally with the whole pandemic thing. The fear of death, death drives people to really poor decision making. Um, and I think God will always confront us with the brevity of life. He does so throughout Scripture in a number of different ways of saying it. So He wants us to grow in these things, and we can. And, and it takes the whole church to help us get there, too. We don't do it alone, right? All right, we're going to move on to some letters. One letter, or maybe two. Yeah, maybe two to the Earl of Dartmouth. The Earl of Dartmouth. Uh, anyone know what an Earl is? E A R L. Yeah, E A R L. Duke of Earl. Yeah. It, it, it's, a, it's a Duke of Earl. <laughs> well, in this case, you could be the Earl of Duke, actually, right? Earl is a place in that song. It, well, it, it's, a, it's above what they call a viscount and a baron, but it's below a duke and a marquess. Okay? So it's above a viscount. Obviously, it's in the sort of British hierarchy of who's cool and who's got money and what kind of palace do they live in. So it's above a viscount and a baron, whatever a viscount is, but it's below a duke. So, <coughs> um, so the, the Earl of Dartmouth, his name is... I'm not even sure how you pronounce his last name. Some of you historians might. L-E-G-G-E. That would sound like either Legge or Leg or Leggy or Bill. His name is William. We'll call him Bill, Bill L. <laughs> he was the second Earl of Dartmouth, born 1731. Uh, there was somebody that wrote of him, not this quote of here saying, I have not the honor of Lord Dartmouth's acquaintance, but I hear he is full of grace and valiant for the truth, a lover of Christ and an, and an ornament to his gospel. What's the last time you were called an ornament to the gospel? <laughs> an ornament to his gospel. Um, exalted as was the special position of Lord Dartmouth, he did not escape the, the misrepresentations and even the ridicule of some of his friends. So here's a guy high up in government. Right? He doesn't escape the misrepresentations and even the ridicule of some of his friends who regarded his opinions and practices as fanatical and absurd. They, however, afterwards saw cause entirely to change their views. Um, it was through uh, whoever this was that Mr. Newton was introduced to Lord Dartmouth as a person well qualified to take on the vacant curacy at Olney, which is where he became a pastor, uh, Newton did. His lordship prevailed on the Bishop of Lincoln to ordain Mr. Newton. So Newton's appointment to the pastorate at Olney, O-L-N-E-Y, was somewhat influenced by the Earl of Dartmouth. So, a little bit more about this guy. He was in the House of Lords, which was you know, part of the governmental structure there. He opposed the Stamp Act. Anybody recall what that was? <laughs> what was the Stamp Act? Yes? Every piece of paper yes. had to be stamped. Yep. So over in Britain, where they're making these decisions about America, he was actually opposed to that. He did, however, call for overwhelming force against colonists that were rebelling. He resigned, though, because he didn't want a direct war against them. So he didn't want to go to war against the colonists, but he did call for strict use of force against those that were rebelling against the British government. Uh, and then, just as sort of an aside, which is interesting, 
there was a particular congregational minister, and in those days, congregationalism was not what it typically is known as now when we think of the congregational church, right? Although even that has, you know, we're in Holland, it's Holland Church, but it used to be Holland Congregational Church. It's much more a reference to the form of, of uh, government polity within the church, right? The, the way that the church is set up. But nowadays, you know, like, for example, the Congregational Churches of Christ are typically liberal and, and, you know, have no problem like the one in Paxton advertising Easter Sunday with an Easter egg on starting at 10 a.m., right? So that's the difference, right? So that's going on. Back in those days, it wasn't so. But there was a Congregational Minister, Eliezer Wheelock, who established a school for Native Americans in New Hampshire, which ultimately became Dartmouth College, so we see uh, he was again uh, this this Duke, this Earl of Dartmouth was involved in helping to support that. So here, this guy is intertwined with our history entirely. <clears throat> so here's a letter he's writing to him. It says it may be added that the Earl of Dartmouth was highly esteemed by George the Third, not the King. He appointed him principal secretary of state of the American Department. So just some very fascinating history here. And a Christian influence on him in the person of, of of John Newton, and of course, what's his, you know, his the Earl himself being a Christian, how that impacted at least part of our early American history. I just find that to be quite fascinating. This is a letter on doing the things we would. So, what do we suppose that's coming from? On doing the things we would. I guess you've got to be at least familiar with the King James to some extent to know where these are coming from. Yes, yeah, Romans seven, right? He says here, uh, it would be easy to make out a long list of particulars which a believer would do if he could, but in which from first to last he finds a mortifying inability. What a way to put it. I've just got a mortifying inability to not use colorful language on the snowblower. Alright? It's a mortifying inability. Right? Right? Randy has a mortifying inability to just drive by Dunkin' Donuts on a Sunday morning. <laughs> but it's to our benefit. <laughs> he says, Permit me to mention a few which I need not transcribe from books for they are always present at my mind. So he says, I don't have to tell you this out of books. I'm not telling you about something that I'm just reading about. This is what happens in my mind, he says. I know. He says, for example, he would willingly enjoy God in prayer. Right? The typical Christian would willingly enjoy God in prayer. In this light, he can recommend it to others. Right? In other words, you ought to be a praying person. Right? You ought to pray always, we tell each other. And he can tell them of the wonderful condescension of the great God who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven. That he would stoop so much lower to afford his gracious ear to the supplication of sinful worms upon earth. So he can talk or she can talk about the great virtues of prayer. And look, isn't it amazing that God, and any one of us could have these con- conversations. Isn't it amazing that God would, would listen to us? That he hears our prayers? Me? You know, you? God actually hears our prayers? Did he see what I thought yesterday? Did he hear what I said this morning? And yet, he's attentive to my prayers, the great king of the universe? By prayer, he can say, you have liberty to cast all your cares upon him that cares for you. But, alas, how seldom can he do as he would? How often does he find this privilege a mere task? 
which he would be glad of a just excuse to omit. Wow. There's a whack right between the eyes. For all the great talk of prayer, there are times when the Christian would just as soon omit it if he could find a good reason to and not have to bother with it. Surely this is not doing as he would when, to borrow the expression of an old woman here, he is dragged before God like a slave and comes away like a thief. So, in some conversation with a woman at church talking about prayer, she said, when it comes to us saying one thing about prayer and doing another, we're basically dragged before God like a slave as if we're going against our will and we come away like a thief. Wow! That's amazing, right? What a... What a what a grasp that Newton has. And again, this comes from his own mind. We are never so acquainted with sin as we are when we see its effects in ourselves. Right? We, we can be very occupied with the sins of others. We can be very occupied and easily passing judgment on others. And sort of saying that person is their sin. Right? And, and, and we do this quite often. I found that I have to Stop reinforcing again the wrong muscle type. I know I use I know I use physical experience a lot, but it helps me to make the connections, right? So I've got an issue with my hamstring right now, where the tendon connects to the your um, your hip at the very bottom. There's a bone right there, right at the top of your thigh, right before your butt. You can feel that bone in there. Well, the tendon that connects there is part of the hamstring, and I've got a considerable strain on that. I don't recall doing any particular thing, but what I do know is what I have discovered is for whatever reason my right leg is weaker than my left leg and my right foot turns out a little bit more than my left foot so I'm probably putting uh, or, or your body can endure that over time but eventually something's going to give and I think the same thing can be said when it comes to when we when we look at our and, and this again happens typically in the public realm when we look at our people that we would consider uh, those who we differ with considerably in politics we look at the people and we see them only as that. We no longer see them as the image of God. This comes from my own mind. Okay? Again, this is me. This is me just sharing with you what I keep on seeing. To be careful to differentiate, that person is an image is image of God. Instead of just seeing them as, you know, just a collection of thoughts that are opposed to my thoughts. It's a hard thing to do. Right? Um, but the reason why I'm there, or can get there, is because... I'm, I'm, I'm out of joint. Um, um, something about me is turning out to the right too much. I'm not, I don't have balance that I need. My spiritual stabilizing muscles are weak and weary. And then when I try to, like I'm going through physical therapy, it's one thing to stand on one leg and, and, and take a 10-pound sort of kettle weight and just pass it behind you like this. Now stand on a soft cushion to do that. And you watch that leg stop wobbling back and forth. I challenge any of you to stand on a pillow and try to do something you would do otherwise. It, and that's because all these little muscles that never gets used, it, I think that's true with us. We have to think of people always, first and foremost, foremost from God's point of view. We can certainly call out sin as we should, because Scripture also tells us have nothing to do with the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Right? Have nothing to do with them. But at the same time, we have to remember that they are the image of God. And so, I think it's easy for us to, to sort of make those mistakes. Now, he continues, The like may be said of reading the Scripture. He believes it to be the Word of God. 
He admires the wisdom and grace of the doctrines, the beauty of the precepts, the richness and suitableness of the promises. Right? And who doesn't? Right? We can brag and boast on Scripture all the time. We'll come across the verse, we share it with someone, it meant something to us, we'll send a text out to somebody in the morning and say, wow, I had this thought this morning. You might even meditate and think about it a good part of the day. Yet, while he thus thinks of it and desires that it may dwell in him richly and be his meditation night and day, he cannot do as he would. It will require some resolution to persist in reading a portion of it every day, and even then, his heart is often less engaged than when reading a pamphlet of whatever that may be. Something going on in the community, right? We can become more engaged with something else other than the Scripture and the way God thinks about things. Or such that even while we're reading something else, we don't ask ourselves, what does God think about this? When we read or we listen to someone, and we all have liberty to listen to whoever you want out there, you know, not all things are profitable. We have to figure that out for ourselves. But let's say you're listening to, you know, Sean Hannity. Or if you're on the other end of the spectrum, you're listening to Rachel Maddow. You, you have to be able to think, what does God think about this? What is this person saying, even if there's some truth to it? But what does, what's God's mind on this? <coughs> and, and we have to train ourselves in these habits of holiness. So I think that Newton is onto something here when he says there are things in our Christian life that we truly, don't we, just adore them? Isn't it amazing that we can pray? I mean, isn't it humbling that we can pray and God actually hears us and answers something? And, and, and we think for a moment that, you know, despite the fact that I've heard the gospel over and over again and I've meditated on Christ crucified and I am amazed and moved uh, to almost heavenly rapture at the, at the thought of being with Christ and of, of loving and have this goal that I can actually be a loving person. And then ten minutes later... Not be that, not even, not even be recognizable as that person. Um, it is, it is a form of. I've come to realize that even impatience is a form of suffering. We're called to be patient, and we can be impatient because of sin. But patience, impatience, agitation, you know, all these are forms of suffering. It's not supposed to be this way. And there are things about us we can't do anything. It's seemingly we we can't right do anything without God's grace. Time goes on, and we make these improvements. But it is suffering to see ourselves as we truly are, knowing what we can be. Bill's just amening over here. Body, Bill has amen body language that's louder than, 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 a, than you know. Yes. Um, Am I right? Yeah. Oh, you're right. That's exactly what I'm thinking. Yeah. Exactly right. Todd. Uh, Luther says, prayer is not, not overcoming God's reluctance, but laying hold of his willingness. Interesting. Say that again. So the uh, Luther says that <coughs> prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, but laying hold of His willingness. Interesting. That that that's from a that's from a considerable mind as well, right, Luther? And you know, for all that, right? I mean, Luther could be an anti-Semite, as he was. You know, so it's just amazing how how and we see this in the history of God's people. I know A. W. Tozer is a brilliant. Christian mind, and yet, you know, his wife would, at the time, and I've read this, admitted to his neglected family, right? So, we are, uh, we, 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 we just see that in ourselves. He, again, here's another one. He would willingly acquiesce in all the dispensations of divine providence. 
Well, what does that mean? That's a mouthful, right? What is, what's he saying there? Somebody translate that. We literally need to translate this. He would willingly acquiesce in all the dispensations of divine providence. What does that mean? How many of you have no clue? Thank you for your honesty on that, right? He would willingly acquiesce. I actually have found this with... Um, I'm attentive to this with Aurora lately. I'm taking for granted that she knows what certain words are. And she'll just, you know, agree and say... And lately it really occurred to me... She, she may not know what that means. So I asked her, do you know what that means? So to acquiesce is to just sort of give over to... Give into, To willingly accept. To sort of cave in in some circumstances, Right? To just give into all the dispensations of divine providence. In other words, everything that God is doing. So, this person would, in his mind or her mind anyway, at least just be willingly giving themselves over to God's providence. They love God's providence. They accept that everything that they do comes from the loving hand of God. That's what that's saying. They would just willingly just surrender their mind and their heart to this is God's, you know, Lord, your will be done in everything. They would willingly do that. He, she believes that all events are under the direction of infinite wisdom and goodness. Everything that happens. And this is just another way of saying all the dispensations of divine providence. So he does elaborate. Believes that all events are under the direction of wisdom and goodness. Everything God does then, right? In other words, is out of his wisdom and his goodness. And shall surely issue in the glory of God. And the good of those who fear him. So it's easy for us to quote, right? Romans 8.28. Right? We know that all things work together for those we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are, you know, called for his purpose. For our good and his glory, we love to say that and repeat that. Right? We all it's such an easy thing to say, and we even believe it sometimes. It's I always believe that when it's happening to somebody else. <laughs> right? The afflictions spring not out of the ground, but are fruits and tokens of divine love, no less than his comforts. Right? So that's, again, here's Newton saying that we are those that would say just as easily that we look, we know that these difficulties aren't the, the result of circumstance or, or chance outside of the sovereign hand of God, but they're fruits and tokens of divine love, no less than his comforts. Just like the comforts he gives us, uh, the donuts are every bit, I mean, the, the, the root canal is every bit from God's love and grace as that donut in the back room is. I have a difficult time admitting that. Right? <laughs> but, here we go again, right? Yes, Gary. I hope I'm reading, uh, the author of the book uh, was saying something along the line of what you're saying, how mm. difficult it is sometimes to mm. accept certain things. Mm. His, uh, his daughter's room was broken in by uh, a person that came in and had a knife to his daughter's throat and raped her. Um, he was just grappling with it for years to try to overcome the hostility that he held towards the man that did it and how it ate him up and how he could, in the back of his mind, he's wondering how did God allow that? Yeah, sure. Kind of thing, you know what I mean? An innocent girl yep. and this guy coming in with mm-hmm. a knife and putting it to a throat and I mean, who among us, right, that has a daughter wouldn't reach down that guy's esophagus, grab his spine, and pull it right out through his mouth? I would. You'd have to, you'd have to arrest me and put me in protective custody because if anyone, if I was able to, and I saw someone do that to Aurora, I'd send him through a. I'd send him through a wood chipper if I had to. You know what I mean? I would. There'd be no mercy whatsoever. I would. I can say to you, I know my heart. 
And unless the grace of God arrested me at that moment, I would surely kill him. And it would take, it would take Officer Cannon, five of his best armed men to stop me, right? I mean, who can't relate to that? What's that? That's right, that's right. But who can't relate to that, right? And so, how do you live with that thought and that tension all the time? Of, of you know, and that's always the great argument that so many of, uh, you know, our atheist friends and or enemies might have against us is, where is your God now? You know what I mean? Yes. The verse in Thessalonians challenges us about that kind of thing. It says, in everything giving God thanks, mm-hmm. for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning right. you. Mm-hmm. Yep. In everything, not for everything, That's but in everything. Exactly. There's a big difference in that particular that, word, in versus for. That's exactly right. And, and maybe that pastor I referred to earlier meant that, but it didn't come across that way at all. You know, yeah, you can give thanks for what? The gospel, for all kinds of things in those circumstances. In other words, those circumstances don't redefine you. You know, they certainly impact you. That person will never be the same. That person will never ever be the same. Period. It's not possible. You, it, we would think if he just went on as if nothing happened, there would be something wrong with that person. So he'll grapple with that for a long time. And some of us might have secret grapplings about what is the grace of God in that? How did that happen? Where, where was the grace of God? We might not publicly admit that, but maybe somewhere inside of us there is that sense of, gee, where was the grace of God in that? And we'll have to understand that we can't see it. Um, that's just too hard. I think sometimes it's necessary to see it in retrospect. You can't, you can't grasp that close to the event. Mm-hmm. Right, that's true too, yeah. No, you're right, because everything in the world is going on in your body and your mind at that time, right? You can't control, because it's not just a mental thing going on. At that point, your adrenaline is going crazy. Everything, you have to remember that we're whole beings. We are physical and we are mental. And it isn't if we can just, even our mental processes are impacted by our chemical, bodily, physiological processes. And likewise, our mental thoughts can impact our physical well-being. So there's an interplay going on there all the time. You can't divorce the two. You can't separate the two. You see something like that happen, and particularly as a man and a leader and protector, all your body, your, your body chemistry is designed to crush that. Crush that evil. Crush that rebellion. It's part of the image of God. So, so but often when he aims to apply them in an hour of present distress, he cannot do what he would. He feels the law in his members warring against the law in his mind, so that in defiance of the clearest convictions, seeing as though he perceived not, he is ready to complain, murmur, and despond. Alas, how vain is man in his best estate. So, he says, so he feels something else going on in his members, which doesn't just mean his, his physical body, but it does include his physical body. Something else is going on inside. The whole being is going on. He feels something else going on. The reason, there's a reason why we feel distress. We feel anger. We feel happiness. We have, again, all these wonderful chemicals in us all the time. We have endorphins. We have a part of our brain that's actually science calls the pleasure center. <laughs> right? Uh, and so all that stuff gets disrupted. It gets thrown into chaos. Body part, electrons, chemical electricity starts misfiring and everything going on. 
our body is a mess. That's why we long for the resurrection of the body as well, right? Mm-hmm. It's not just that our mind is perfect and our body is a mess. No, the, the, again, the interplay between the two is so um, such that it can't be, they can't be separated. So we need newness. We need full newness. We need this body to go into the ground and just rot and be gone. Or we need the resurrection to happen and instantly have our bodies transformed, which I'm all in favor of, by the way. Um, so we feel something else going on inside us and against the law in his mind. And again, that law in his mind that is referring to as Romans is that, that principle in our mind that we know what the, you know, the dispensations of divine providence are. We know, and we know, we know the truth. We've absorbed it to some degree. We believe it deeply to some degree. But then something else comes against it, right? And so, even though, again, in defiance of the clearest convictions, knowing full well, you know, Romans, again, Romans 8.28, you could, you could scratch it out on the beach if you had to, right? You, in sand, you just know it so well. And you know that God is sovereign, and we say it all the time, and we hear it all. So against our clearest convictions, what we know to be so, seeing as though he perceived not, he's ready to complain. As if none of that meant anything. All of a sudden, complaining and moaning and groaning. That's just our lot. And he's simply pointing that out to him. He's simply reminding him of these things. And I imagine it's because, you know, Dartmouth is coming up against these things with people that are, again, they think he's fanatical. They think he's being absurd. He's in the, in the House of Commons, the House of Lords. So he's trying to impact. He's trying to, obviously, he resigned because he didn't think it was right to go to war with America. So he's trying to envision, you know, you've got to fill in some of the back details, maybe with your imaginations a little bit, the things that went on in this man's life as a leader in public office and a man of high esteem and prestige who at the same time is under the impacts and the effects of the gospel all the time. So living in that, that intersection, it's just painful, isn't it? Amen? Isn't it a painful at times? Life is not, the Christian life is not easy. And it, by the way, it's not easy for the non-Christian either who doesn't have that clarity of conviction, who continues to acquiesce to the pleasures of sin for a season, thinking that those pleasures of sin for a season are what make him or her a person that is fulfilled. So they live under the under that additional duress and that additional strain of thinking that the very thing that's killing us is the thing that I need for fulfillment. And he concludes this letter by saying, the more vile we are in our own eyes, the more precious he will be to us. Okay? Um... And a deep, repeated sense of the evil of our hearts is necessary to preclude all boasting. So, I think his point here is we need to see these contradictions in ourselves. We need to see that evil, that residue in ourselves. We need to see that. It, because it precludes all, it precludes all boasting. It, it, it takes all our boasting away. If ever we think we have a moment to be boastful or we've arrived or we're there, all it takes is a little reflection at the end of the day, back on the day to see... Where was I whining? Where was I complaining? You know? Where are you now? And to make us willing to give the whole glory of our salvation where it is due. So even those weaknesses that we find in ourselves and our sanctification, God ultimately uses as the last sentence to the day, all the glory is God's. It's it's through God that everything good that we are and are becoming is taking place. He knows full well Again, David says he knows our frame. He knows we are but dust. He knows that about us. 
That is a consolation to me often that God knows my frame. Right? He does. He knows my frame. He knows I'm a 90 pound weakling spiritually at times. Yeah. I think Christians at times when they're suffering fall in the same trap as the world because the world makes the accusation uh, in relationship to God's goodness and claim to be good. Yes. Um, when Jeremiah says, Look at me, has anyone suffered like me that the mm. Lord brought upon me? Mm-hmm. We have to recognize that God's goodness included the suffering of the only begotten Son. Oh. So we run to Calvary before we run. That's exactly Calvary, right. Before we run to the goodness of God, in the sense that trying to understand this very deep theological yes. uh, thing that we'll never fully yes. understand. That's right. yep. uh, but we see the goodness in Christ, yes. and, and therefore that's the foundation of explaining some of the things that we're going through and saying that I will never suffer like him. That's right. That is precisely the answer to everything. That's the answer to how can there be so much evil in the world. We don't have to understand it. All we need to understand is that it took God, the God-man on the cross mm-hmm. and what he went through. That is sufficient to explain or at least to say I don't need to understand. I see that. That, that, is, that is an explanatory a butchering <laughs> took place there. That, that just tells everything that I know and don't know. It puts to bed all that I think that I should know. Mm-hmm. It says, if you could ever come up with that and envision that as necessary. And that's our answer to... That could be our answer too. How could God allow such evil in the world? Because we are that messed up. We have just no idea how sinful humans are. Yes. Psalm 73, verse 26, he says, my flesh and my heart faileth, mm-hmm. but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. Mm-hmm. Um, in ourselves, um, we feel very weak. Our flesh fails us. Our heart yes. fails us. We're very inadequate. I mean, yep. Thomas begins by saying how envious he was of the wicked, how they yeah. prospered mm-hmm. and he, he He's distraught about it until mm-hmm. he went into the sanctuary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yes. we, we're going to have those seasons where we're going to be down, distraught, That's right. discouraged, oh, depressed boy, even. Mm-hmm. But when we have that switch go on, it'll be because we've been in the sanctuary. Mm-hmm. And we yeah. recognize flesh and the heart fails. Who, mm-hmm. who, who have I in heaven but thee? There's none upon earth that I desire beside mm-hmm. thee. Yeah. That sort of ends in victory that when we can switch from, from the down to the up mm-hmm. and, and see things heavenly and not be so distressed by what we see on the earth. Yep. Thankfully, we have a we have a heaven again. We got a future ahead of us. Amen. As bad as life can get, mm-hmm. Paul says that in this life only we have hope and Christ. Oh, sure. We're all men most miserable. That's so right. Heaven makes a difference sometimes in the way we look at the discouragements and trials of life. Lay not up yourselves treasures on earth. Mm-hmm. Where he says, moth and rust corrupt; these break through mm-hmm. and steal, etc. Et he could have gone on and on with a list of things. Yes. But lay up yourselves treasures in heaven, and then. And we know how to do that, right? I mean, we know how to we know how to practice that kind of forward thinking. We do it every day. It's three o'clock when things are at zoo at work. So, oh God, it's only two more hours. Thank God, I'm out of here in an hour, right? But we 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 innately know how to shift from the current agony to what's coming, right? We know five. We have to know that Christ is coming and He's going to return as surely as we know that five o'clock is coming at the end of the workday, right? But it can be difficult for whatever reason at times to embrace that fully. Then you think about retirement 
want to retire. Because right. After retirement, you find out that things aren't any better. Man. <laughs> <laughs> it's not what you expected. That was you were been told was so uh, uh, miraculous and wonderful. All yeah. Yeah. Years. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <coughs> Again, a sense of these evils when hardly anything else can do it. Again, a sense of this evil's will, so a sense of this in ourselves, when hardly anything else can do it, will reconcile us to the thoughts of death. Yea, make us desirous to depart that we may sin no more. So when he says, when we fully have a grasp of this, when we really understand, right, that and that alone, he says, when hardly anything else can, can, can reconcile us to the thoughts of death, that sense of, of, of the struggle within us ought to reconcile us to the thought that death comes someday. And it should make us desirous to depart that we may sin no more since we find depravity so deep-rooted in our nature that like the leprous house, the whole fabric must be taken down before we can be freed from its defilement. So if you recall from the Old Testament, the priest would go and look at the house if there was a spot on it. He had to go back in seven days. And eventually, if this thing didn't go away, this leprous house, he had to tear the whole thing down. Tear it all down. Burn it up and get rid of it. And what an example that is in the Old Testament for us to see. A very physical, that has application for us in this new covenant dispensation, in this reality in the gospel. That ultimately, ultimately that has to happen. The whole structure has to be taken down. Or again, he come and, and, and he'll, he'll give us like that death and new life in an instant so that we don't even necessarily know that we die. Then and not till then, we shall be able to do the thing that we would when we see Jesus, we shall be transformed into his image and have done with sin and sorrow forever. Mm. And that's the great hope, right? Mm. I am with great difference, etc. how he ends it. So that's our letter, very involved letter to uh, and, and just brings up so many thoughts in our own mind. Again, as Newton is want to do, he just has this ability to bring a million thoughts out of one and uh, we can be grateful for it. So we'll have three more weeks of Mr. Newton after today. And uh, we have somebody. Barry, would you please close in prayer for us? Lord, we thank you. We thank you for these brethren that lived so many hundreds of years before us, Lord. And actually, Lord, since your time 2,000 years ago, and even before the believers in the days of Israel, that we have a chain, Lord, of, of belief. And yet, in this world, we suffer, Lord. We are so... So much is unknown. Mm-hmm. Uh, like Paul said, we see through a glass darkly and we grope about, Lord, so much in, in fear of death, as was mentioned, and fears for our family, Lord, everything that can become anxious in our life. And yet we thank you that our Lord Jesus is a pioneer, that he blazed the trail for us. He came and lived our life, Lord, and, and died in our place mm-hmm. with a great substitution and we praise you that because of him and because of your plan for your people that we have we have hope because of what he's done, because of your love and mercy. And we thank you that it's guaranteed. We thank you that your Holy Spirit is a guarantee in our life, a deposit of a guarantee of heaven. And how Jesus said that he goes to prepare a place for his disciples and for us that we may be with him forever. And that is our hope, Lord. Help us to not be afraid in this life. Help us not to wonder why things happen but to then look to you for our future hope for our daily hope and what we can do to keep trusting you even when all appears to be sad and crisis lord that as pat said you're not punishing us you your discipline is for because of love that we can become like you 
and share in the righteousness and see the fruit of it, the harvest of the righteousness. And so, Lord, just bless our time now as they build into our service. Bless those coming and bless the word, the singing, all those things, Lord, we're about to be partakers of. And just be with us, Lord, we ask it through Jesus' name. Amen. And, and, and Lord, let me just add, Lord, might we add also for the young people that are up at the, up at the church under the uh, teaching of our sisters, uh, may both the teacher and the student profit greatly from it. Lord, we love you and give you thanks. Amen. Amen. And, uh,